DW Living Planet with Sam Baker. Hello and welcome to the show. In recent months, climate activists have captured headlines with some unusual techniques. They've thrown mashed potatoes and tomato soup at paintings, for example, and superglued themselves to roads and runways. Right now, in the German town of Lutrat, climate activists are resisting eviction. They've thrown stones and fireworks at police, who have an order to remove the protesters, in order for a mining company to dig for coal. Climate scientists say we have just the remainder of this decade, that's seven years now, to reduce our global emissions by at least 43% in order to keep temperatures from warming more than 1.5 degrees Celsius, that's 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. This is important to avoid additional flooding and drought around the world. So today on the show, we're asking, are climate protesters going too far and harming their own cause? Or are they not going far enough in light of sobering climate realities? And are their efforts leading to any meaningful change? We're going to get into it here on Living Planet. Stay tuned. Let's begin a little closer to our studios here in Bonn, Germany today with the occupation of the small hamlet of Lutzelot. Protesters, squatters, radicals, advocates, even terrorists. Climate activists in this town have been called a lot of names. But they argue that if the land under this small village is dug up by the company RWE, Germany will blow through any remaining chance it has of meeting its Paris climate targets. This part of Germany is not dissimilar from West Virginia in the U.S. or Hunter Valley in Australia. It's coal country, and it's been mined for decades. My DW colleague, Christy Platson recently spoke with activists there, along with mine workers and politicians. Christy joins me now to discuss this situation. Hi, Christy. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me on. So can you just give us a sense of this place, what the region is like, and what this giant mine there looks like? Well, I think the region has a really ambivalent relationship to coal. On the one hand, a lot of people work in that industry. There are, I think, eight major coal pits in that area. And these are huge pits we're talking about. And villages had to be resettled. And there's also a lot of pollution, both in terms of burning coal, but also related to the digging going on in these pits. So um, on that level, I would say people, yeah, feel pretty ambivalent about about coal. All right. Well, let's hear a bit from your visit. You started out by speaking with one local resident of a nearby town. His name is Holger Leufeld. Yeah, so Holger, he's not from the region, but he's been living um, in a town very close to the Gottsweiler II coal pit for several years now with uh, his wife and his small child. Yeah, he uh, basically kindly escorted me out to the pit, and on the way he told me a bit about what what it's like living near the pit. Um, For example, he's particularly concerned about the air quality uh, levels um, in his town, and there was a study there he told me about, um, yeah, saying it's, you know, worse than living in a major city in terms of air quality. And where we were was really, you know, kind of, except for the town, sort of in the middle of a cornfield. Do you feel a presence of the coal industry living here? Yes, definitely. It was from the beginning because we could see the big hole there. 
and it's quite huge, you will see. Even though they decided that some farms um, that some farms will stay here and will not be destroyed, we still know that another uh, street we will see later will be destroyed also. And so we are at the end on a small island. Two areas, there is the whole directly next to uh, our city. Directly means with a, with a difference about uh, 400 meters. Yeah, okay, so pretty close. Yeah. That is really close, <laughs> especially when you think about the discussions um, for wind energy. You uh, at least need to have 1.5 kilometers distance from the next house, right. at least. Now we are reaching the, the end of the village. Mm -hmm. And this street, you see up there, mm -hmm. this street probably will be destroyed. Okay. Well, I guess, is it is this the town or is it through this gate? This one. Right, yeah, it's all this, right? We're already yeah. in it. Yeah, because what we're seeing here is, I mean, the same types of buildings that were are in your town here, like the red brick buildings, but we've got banners, um, it says <laughs> burn patriarchy, not coal. We have rainbow painted on, uh, on one wall here. Um, an Antifa flag, lots of messages painted on the buildings. And you said the people here, there are people, protesters, camping here. They don't want to be photographed. Yeah. So we can go on. Where, where should we go now? How close are we to the pit now? Over there. It's over there. So I should clarify at this point that Lusakat is not exactly like a real bustling town anymore. There are about a dozen buildings or so a mix of brick homes, farmhouses. Uh, but until recently, there was only really one true inhabitant still there, a farmer named Eckhart Hoykamp. He and two tenants had sued to stop the energy company, RWE, from taking over the property and digging up the coal beneath it. But this spring, the courts ruled in favor of RWE and said that the town could be demolished. So Eckhart, he moved out a couple months ago. But over the last couple of years that this has been such a controversy, the space has attracted a lot of protesters. So you hear a lot of people saying no one really lives in Lutzagat. It's just a symbol for the climate movement. Oh, we can see it now. Yeah. Wow. It's part, like sudden. Part. Part. <laughs> okay. Part of the, Well, I see a giant hole. So this is part of the giant hole. Wow. This is um, giving a Grand Canyon yeah. uh, <laughs> energy. <laughs> Except a bit more man-made. <laughs> I'm gonna climb up on this a little bit to get, I don't know if I can get up this wood, uh, mud, okay. here, just so I can see a little better. I'm all good, thanks. Okay, so you can see a big, I guess this is dirt, all the sand, the lighter stuff, and then we probably, then the black stuff's coal, obviously, right? Yeah. yeah. And there's a turbine here churning up the coal. It stopped raining it's, finally. 24 uh, 7. 24 7? Yeah. yeah. Okay. That means there's people working here 24 7. Yeah. That's interesting to me that it's on 24 7. I wonder, I mean, I guess there must be a business case for that. I don't see why that's necessary <laughs> to keep it going 24 7. Energy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> people need, need energy. Yeah, they need, just need it on that scale. Yeah. yeah. Now, the main argument for continuing to expand this mine is the energy crisis going on in Germany right now. 
As the tap for Russian methane gas has been turned off due to Russia's war in Ukraine, Germany has scrambled to build new gas terminals, as well as keeping coal mines and nuclear plants running that were planned to close. So many see these decisions as really necessary to keep energy prices down with homegrown energy sources. But we've also seen renewables, wind and solar, get remarkably more affordable in recent years. So many are asking why mine brown coal or lignite, which is comparably quite inefficient. Christy, you're a business reporter here at DW. What's your take on the economics of this energy situation? You know, basically they have moved the phase out of coal in North Rhine-Westphalia up several years trying to get out of coal earlier than they'd been planning. So 2030 is the goal instead of 2038. But the reason they're doing that is because they want to burn, dig up and burn more coal in the short term because of this energy crisis. And a lot of critics of this move basically are saying that it's about lobbying on the part of RWE, on the part of the coal industry, and saying that basically... Yeah, that we're putting the environment, we're putting, you know, the, uh, a, a livable earth behind profits for this very strong energy company in Germany. So, I mean, there is something to be said for that. The company does need to make a profit. Um, you know, that's, that's just how the system works. Now, the climate side of this debate is pretty clear. Brown coal is one of the worst fossil fuels when it comes to emissions. Germany is the sixth largest historic emitter of greenhouse gases, and that's largely due to its use of coal. And these activists are saying that if this area is mined, Germany will blow through its CO2 budget. So how does this kind of square this environmental reality with the economic argument here in Germany? That makes me think of a conversation we had while we were out in this area with a local mayor that we talked to there. And this was a social Democrat mayor so from the same party as Chancellor Olaf Scholz, um, a party that's definitely, you know, about making Germany more green, but at the same time is a party that's really close to workers and also really close to the coal industry. And I think how he sees it is that Let's just say we cut off coal completely right now, which is I think many activists would be thrilled about, say no more coal from tomorrow, it's done. That the economic fallout, the fallout of like the jobs being lost, the people working, the just general uh, insecurity that it could potentially create would lead to political fallout that would have such a great backlash against the movement to become sustainable that it would ultimately threaten Germany's goals of becoming, you know, becoming completely reliant on only renewable energy in the long term. So you went to Lutzrat and spoke with the protesters there uh, before the current eviction that's taking place. Let's hear from one of them that you spoke with. Hi. So, yeah, I'm Alma. I have been involved in the climate justice movement for over 10 years. And Lutzrat is just one of those spaces where uh, you always need more people. And it's also a very, very important space, not only as a symbol, as uh, many politicians tend to say, but also simply that it's a very practical place of climate justice because there is so much uh, coal below Lutzerat and behind Lutzerat that if Lutzerat goes, then the 1.5 degrees commitment of Germany to the Paris Agreement goes as well. Now, um, you're giving me a tour around here. The, it's a pretty interesting looking place. We've just walked in. Do you talk to me about what we're seeing right here. 
Um, so we just walked into one of the meadows of Lützerath behind the tree lines. Beyond the tree lines, you have the coal mine that is several hundred meters deep. And what I'm seeing right now is a lot of like tree houses in the trees, obviously, but also a lot of wooden structures on the ground uh, that people have been building for over two years as a way for them to make uh, the occupation more sustainable because people are living here and they are very normal people who need also a tiny bit of warmth and uh, a good space to live together. We tend to talk about climate activists to be the, to be the voice of anyone yeah. saying, and I feel like that makes the prod problem seem like, oh, as there's if, this little yeah. group of people. As if climate was just a topic for activists. Yeah. And also, what do you mean by being an activist? Yeah. I mean, that term itself can be very problematic because some people just feel alienated by it because, oh, okay, I'm not, I don't know, yeah, I'm not sitting in a treehouse, I'm not an activist, yeah. but that's not true. Like, everyone's decisions, everyone acts, everyone's political acts, be it in daily life or by stepping out of daily life, yeah. is an act of political work and therefore everyone is an actor and it's everyone's responsibility. There is only a certain number of people who have the capacities, be it physical or personal or otherwise, to actually come to these kind of places. These kind of places are front lines, but this is not where most of the work has to happen. We make it more visible by occupying and trying to defend like very important places like Lützerath, but we just cannot like occupy every site of destruction in the world yeah. there are just not enough people to do that so it is something that society as a whole has to take on okay so that was the perspective there from one of the protesters you know there are a lot of different opinions about this across germany right now in the past, removing activists like this from regions where coal companies are coming in has been a very expensive endeavor and not always necessarily peaceful. What was your sense of the protesters there and how people in the local communities felt about them? You know, I spoke to people that work at RWE and they're certainly, you know, right in the line of fire of these activists because the protesters are trying to get them to stop doing their job. And they're using tactics there like um, destroying equipment, hurling abuse at the workers when they're trying to work. So, yeah, I mean, really a lot of aggressive behavior. And that's definitely not something welcome by the people who are the target of it, who are, you know, these these RWE workers. Man, man nennt diese Leute dort Aktivisten. They call these people their activists. For me personally, they're terrorists, not all of them. I know this, and I've often driven past them as an RWE employee while they were staging peaceful protests. They have their opinion, we have ours. That's legitimate, but that has changed in the last year. And now there are people here who no longer carry out the protest, but are really autonomous radicals who don't care if lives are lost. They live in tree houses. I personally find it an exciting experiment to really live there so autonomously, not to be dependent on the water supply or the electricity supply of a country. But if you look at Germany as a whole, I see a very small proportion who think they have to determine how all the other 99% in Germany should live. That is not how a society can function. A society only functions when a common consensus is found, 
But when this consensus is found, such as the coal phase-out, then it must also be accepted socially by all political factions on the right and left of center. Dann muss man diesen auch gesellschaftlich von allen politischen Strömungen rechts, links, in der Mitte akzeptieren. So, Christy, after having spoken with locals, protesters, miners, how did visiting Lutzerat leave you feeling and thinking about this situation? Yeah, I'd say my main takeaway from having been there and spoken with everybody was that this area, which had so identified with coal and with the coal industry, had really come to peace with the idea of the phase-out and um, that, you know, it was time to move away from coal. And I'd say... Yeah, my impression was that, you know, people accept there that that coal is incredibly damaging to the environment. I could really see where everyone was coming from, really. I understand that the activists and saying, no, we have to stop now. But also the, the people working in the industry who saying, you know, the government of Germany told us to mine this coal for the sake of our economy, for the for the sake of the people of Germany. And then they told us, stop, we're the bad guys. But now again, they're saying, you're the no, we need United, they're good guys. So so they're really being pulled back and forth. And so I can understand the sense of confusion that that, that area is feeling right now. Thanks for bringing us to the region. Thanks for giving us a sense of that, Christy. And thanks for coming on Living Planet today. Yeah, thanks so much, Sam. For more of Christy's reporting, you can check out the DW podcast on the Green Fence. Christy co-hosted its latest season, which was all about energy in Germany. You can find On the Green Fence wherever you listen to podcasts. The protesters in Lutzerat, some came from a bit further afield, traveling to Germany from other countries. I was curious about what motivated these activists to travel internationally in order to save a small town from a coal mine. Here's what one of them from Italy had to say. Lutzerat is an uh, European and I dare say global symbol for the fight against fossil fuels and for a different kind of society and uh, an energy system to the current one. Um, So it was natural for me to travel to this very important place uh, and resist with it uh, during its eviction. So how effective are protests like the occupation going on in Lutzerat? We can all think of iconic acts of civil disobedience throughout history that were instrumental to changing public perception. But where's the line between tactics that sway others and actions that make people want to disassociate themselves from those involved? In recent months, we've seen climate activists block roads and airports by gluing themselves to the pavement, and they've thrown soup and potatoes at famous artworks and museums. We are in a climate catastrophe, and all you are afraid of is tomato soup or mashed potatoes on a painting. Though we should mention the artworks were protected by glass. The general public isn't always happy about these actions, however. A recent poll found that 83% of Germans thought these sorts of protests have gone too far. To help me unpack the effective from the off-putting is James Osden, founder and director of Social Change Lab, a UK nonprofit that conducts research on social movements. 
He started this organization after participating in environmental groups as an activist himself, but then questioned whether or not tactics were actually having an effect. Welcome to Living Planet, James. Thanks for having me. So what does the data say? Have climate activists gone too far in recent months? I mean, have we seen these actions really draw attention to climate change? Or are onlookers staying more focused on the shocking tactics themselves than the message that these activists are trying to get across? Even though they are getting loads of attention, and even though a lot of it might be on tactic, it still means much more coverage of the issue than there was previously. So for example, when Joseph Boyle threw tomato soup at the Van Gogh painting, we talked about climate issues much more than we would have otherwise. So even though, yes, we, there was a big emphasis on tactics, relative to doing nothing, there was a much strong emphasis on climate change. And we've actually done some polling around other campaigns done by Just Stop Oil, which is a UK-based group that does lots of this quite uh, controversial civil disobedience. And we've done before and after surveys of the public during their campaigns. We found actually there's no negative impact on public opinion towards climate policies. So even though people seem to dislike the group more, there's no negative impact on climate policies. And there are some positive impacts in that during our first surveys in uh, April 2022, we actually found that people were more willing to take moderate forms of climate action. So people said they were more likely to attend a legal climate protest, more likely to talk to their friends and family about climate change, but also lobby their local MPs. So there's like some definite elements of increased kind of willingness to take action, even though it might not be in the radical way that Just Stop Oil is doing it, it's still increased for some forms of climate activism, which is ultimately what uh, most climate groups do want. So we've got a, a couple different, I guess, aspects or outcomes of this sort of activism. We've got how much media attention it's getting, public awareness, public opinion, whether or not the public goes out and does something themselves, and then, of course, policy change. What about the policy side of things? Have we seen movement? I guess it's really been the past couple of years with these more, some would call radical actions, some would say strong actions, shocking, whatever you want to call them. We kind of can trace some elements. I think Insulate Britain is a good example. So Insulate Britain was a particularly disruptive group also based in the UK who are blocking the motorway. Even though they had no immediate wins, now a year later after their campaign, there is actually a big insulation policy and program being rolled out by the UK government. So media coverage around insulation as an issue around double to tripled in the months during the campaign and stayed high for some time afterwards. So these groups can also influence policy, but the effect is much harder to understand relative to things like media coverage or public opinion. And when it comes to activism, particularly in the environmental realm, is the public able to differentiate different groups and different perhaps levels of activism or is this something that they see with broad strokes as the same group, all one group of activists? So we often ask people during our public opinion polling if they've heard of two groups, such as Just Up Oil or Friends of the Earth, who are real existing groups. And also we ask about a third fictional group. And people often report they actually have heard of the fictional group as high as 20% or even 50% say they have heard of this. So I think there's definitely some misunderstanding of like who is who in the climate activist sphere and who's doing what. And I think to the layperson, you just see people doing disruptive action. It's not particularly clear who they are. And often the media might not cover their name. And I think this has one possible detriment, which is uh, one thing we study, which is the radical flank effect, is it requires the the public to see a group as more radical. And then they in turn support more moderate groups because they don't want to associate with a radical group. But if there's no clear differentiation of who's moderate and who's radical, this effect becomes slightly less useful and harder to disentangle. Are there historical examples of this radical flank effect being effective and helping movements to succeed in their goals? 
The radical flank effect, uh, just to recap again, so it has this effect where the radical group can essentially make the moderate group seem more reasonable and more approachable. And even though you don't associate with them, this group seems just on the whole something you'd feel much more inclined to join because you still support the issue broadly. Like people still believe in climate change is an important issue. They just think, oh, maybe this particular organization is just too extreme for me. One really salient one is uh, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. So Martin Luther King was with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and they were the, the kind of the nonviolent activists of the civil rights era. And at the same time, Malcolm X was the, on the slightly more disruptive and radical side of things. And people would often say, oh, maybe Malcolm X's tactics are a bit disruptive. But then there's other groups, such as the NAACP, who are much more moderate, not organizing anything particularly disruptive or anything particularly kind of radical. And then you can kind of see, actually, there's good studies of this. Over time, their support base grew massively around the same time as Martin Luther King and Malcolm X kind of peaked in popularity. So you kind of need to have this good cop for this good cop, bad cop strategy to work. So if Just a Boyle or other groups can be more disruptive, I was like last generation, you kind of need this like good, more moderate alternative for people to join. And in that case, that could be Fridays for Future. But also I think from um, what we've seen and read is another reason Fridays for Future was particularly persuasive and effective in that they grew massively and they were quite influential in shaping at least discourse and policy and public opinion in Europe. It was, due to, it was quite an unexpected group going out to protest and take part. So often school students don't engage in political activism. They don't engage in quite political issues, but this on time, millions of students all around the world were engaging this. So it kind of really highlights the policymakers that this is a key priority for the younger generation. This is something they have to take seriously. And that is something that policymakers do care about. So now it's one thing to be disruptive, uh, to ruin someone's commute. It's another to do something that actually destroys things, property, or could even put people's lives in danger. In the recent Lutzerat protests, we've seen activists throwing stones at the police even. How does actual violence, not just disruption, factor into the equation of how the public perceives activist movements? From what we've studied, and there's quite a lot of academic literature looking at this, but it seems to be that political violence, if instigated by protesters or if kind of utilized by protesters as a tactic, seems to be quite off-putting to the general public. And you generally seem to see losses in public support for an issue. So not just the group, but the issue overall, if a movement becomes violent. And I think there's some good study of this from the civil rights era, actually, where areas that had more nonviolent protests had increased votes for Democrats, which is kind of in line with what they wanted, but actually areas with violent protests kind of backfired and had increased votes for Republicans. Generally, I would say for movements, they probably shouldn't use violence as a kind of tactic or tool in their arsenal of strategies. We have seen some backlash to some of these protests in particular in the UK, proposed laws to change rights to protest. Looking back at other movements through history, is this something that's seen again and again? And, and how does that kind of play out in terms of repression or backlash politically to social movements? Yeah, so this is something we've investigated a little bit, especially for the animal rights movement. So um, there was a really kind of high period of activity in the animal rights movement in the year 2000s against an animal testing facility, both it's happening both in the US and in the UK at the same time. And basically forced like 200 companies to divest from this animal science lab uh, based in Cambridge. And then they eventually had to go to the US because the stock exchange wouldn't list them. And as a result of that, they had really severe crackdown by the police. And that meant new legislation targeted almost exclusively at animal rights activists. That happened both in the US and in the UK. And some key organizers got jail time. And that in turn did put a lot of people off getting involved in the animal rights movement for some several years afterwards. So I think we are seeing quite similar trends in the climate movement, especially in the UK. So the uh, UK government recently passed a bill that 
increase the sentences, both fines and prison sentences for peaceful crime activists. And we've had the first person convicted under this new legislation who's now facing a six-month prison sentence for a non-violent act, which is uh, which is blocking the road. They actually want to bring in additional laws, some that actually might be able to restrict your use of internet, uh, your ability to talk with certain people, and attend future protests if you've been to more than two protests in five years and you're deemed as a risk, whatever that means. Definitely there is this kind of growing government kind of repression or like animosity towards activists, even though they might be peaceful and nonviolent. And in terms of advising groups in how to deal with that, are there maneuvers to change tactics and change course to work around those sorts of proposed laws or try and avoid them or try to get them stopped? Yeah, I think the activists can also innovate. So, for example, Just Stop Oil innovated recently with rather than doing a roadblock, they were just doing a very slow march, which doesn't really fit into any legislation so they can actually now block roads and it's not quite covered by this loophole. So activists are generally very innovative and can invent new tactics and get around this. <laughs> the marching sounds like some in-person trolling. <laughs> yeah, it's quite funny. And then yeah, all the both the police and the politicians are quite surprised. Like They don't know what to do with this. So yeah, I think things like this, I think will, will continue happening. And yeah. That was James Austin, founder and director of Social Change Lab. We want to hear what you think. What makes an effective protest? Are these actions important to stop climate change? Are activists going too far or not far enough? Share your thoughts with us by sending an email or voice memo to livingplanet at dw.com, and we might just play it on the show. Thanks this week to Vipka Teigtmaier and Zoan Leutfeld in the studio, and to Evelyn McClafferty for help with production. I'm Sam Baker. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week with more environment stories from around the globe. Mm-hmm.